There was a race on the 4th of July of this year. The race is known as the Peachtree Road Race. It takes place every year in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a 10K race, so that comes out to a little over six miles, not a full marathon, still more than I've ever run in my life at one time, six miles. And in the women's elite division, the defending champion was an Ethiopian woman named Senebra Teferi. Senebra Teferi, as the race was coming to a close, appeared to be in the lead. She was going to defend her title. She would have back-to-back victories. She was less than 150 meters from the end. The finish line was in sight. So the race is nearly over. And the police motorcycle that had been leading these people the whole time turned off the course in order to allow the runners to finish the race on their own. But instead of continuing the race, the ferry followed the police motorcycle and it cost her the victory. You can imagine the heartbreak a mistake like that can bring, but we can also understand how it happened. From the beginning of the race, six miles, She was following this police car. This is the guy who clears the road, makes sure the road is empty for them. And she did that the whole race. She's focused probably on him. And now, even though the end is in sight, he turns off course and she naturally follows him. They were able to get her attention. She turned around and she ended up coming in third. So she didn't win. She lost about $7,000 worth of prize money. That's just a small picture, though, of... What a bigger and more significant tragedy is. And that is when someone makes the same kind of mistake or decision in the Christian race. Hebrews 12 says we're we're running a race. And there are people, Christ told us about them, who will run the race. They seemingly follow Christ for a time. And then they're led astray. Either by desires in themselves or by false teaching. It is precisely that possibility that led Paul to write most of his epistles. And it's particularly evident in his letter to the Colossians. Just like the church in Ephesus, the church of Colossae was being confronted with false teaching, tempting people to abandon the race they had begun to run. It wasn't to stop running. It was to run a different race. It was to tweak the truth just enough so you're no longer following the true Christ, but it still is a type of religious activity but you're going in another direction and eternally the only other direction is a race to hell if you look again at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2 you've got two related instructions one more time verse 6 says therefore as you received Jesus the Lord so walk in him and walking in the New Testament is a is a is a expression of how you live your life. There's a deliberateness to your walk, your, your pattern. You received him as Lord. Walk in him. Don't separate from Christ. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, what led people to run away from Christ was to say, I'm missing something. So there's a spiritual or actual discontentment. So they're no longer abounding with thanksgiving for what they have. They want something more. And people are giving it to them. So you have the second command. The first command is stay focused on Christ. The second command is don't be led astray. Don't be fooled. Look at verse 8. 
See to it. Make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's just describing each other. The philosophy of this world is empty deception. It is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Those three verses are a good summary of our responsibility in the Christian life. We are to walk with Christ, and we are to be on guard. We are to stay focused on Christ, and we are to be on guard against being taken captive by false ideas, many of them even coming in the name of Christ. But how do you do that? How do I make sure that I'm focused on Christ? Christ, the one whom I receive, the one whom the scriptures teach us about. This is gonna be our focus as we hear from God's word this morning, but also prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. This is what happens, this is what gets explained for us in the verses that follow, beginning in verse nine. These are wonderful truths and they're helpful. So they may sound basic to us, but this is the gospel And they're helpful reminders, especially as we come to remember the sacrifice of Christ. If we want to stay focused on Christ, if we want to make sure we're not being deceived by lies, we need to make sure we don't forget what it is we have been given in Christ. The Apostle Paul unpacks four things we've been given. Number one, you have been given the divine nature. You have been given the divine nature Look at verse nine. He says, for, so it's a connection to the previous command, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In theology or in um, just biblical study, there's something known as the Colossian heresy. There was some false teaching attacking the Colossian church, and nobody knows exactly what it is. Paul doesn't address it head on, but we can gather those elements by studying the letter to the Colossians. And one of the the things that existed at the time that it seems to be confronting them was this idea from Greek philosophy that there was the highest God, and then everything else emanated from him, and they were lower levels of deity. And at the very bottom of this deity ladder was mankind. We're the lowest, we're down here, and God's the highest, and and we can sometimes interact with spiritual beings or angels, and they're gonna be intermediaries kind of getting us closer to God, but God is way out there. And so they thought of Christ, well, he came, he was a special man, and, and he had some type of divine nature, but he was somewhere along this ladder. He wasn't fully God in the same way that the creator is God. And there are people who believe those things today. You you need something else to take you to God because Christ isn't God in the same way. But this is the clearest, one of the clearest affirmations in the New Testament of the deity of Christ. In him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he says it in the present tense. He is, uh, 1 Timothy refers to him as the man, Christ Jesus. He is God and he is Man, there was a, a teaching at the time also that said, and even since Christianity, that, that the spirit of God came into the baby or came upon a man named Jesus when he was baptized, and then when he died, the spirit of deity left him. So it wasn't God and man as one. It was God kind of covering or mixed and then separating and all kinds of things. He says, no, no, no. Christ is truly and fully God, and this has been the Christian teaching since Christ has been here. This is what he taught his disciples. This is what his apostles Taught, this is the teaching of the New Testament. Christ is fully and truly God. He is equal to the Father in power, in glory, in essence. 
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is not a highly ranked angel. And yet this is what groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. He's, he's a step closer to God, but he's not the same as God the Father. Well, Paul's not just giving a theology lesson. He's trying to apply it to the people. There's a connection to their life. The fullness of the Godhead is in Christ, and by faith, he is in you, and you are in him. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul referred to Christ as Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is a mystery here. We don't become God. We'll never be God. We're not divine in that sense, but we are in Christ, and so we have the fullness of God with us and in us. 2 Peter 1.3 says, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence. And so you may feel like, well, I'm not tempted to look for other divine beings or talk about angels or anything like that. But there is something missing in my Christian life. And when I unlock that secret, I'll be able to get past this sin. I'll be able to get past this grief, this struggle. My life is hard. I have problems. And I just need to find out the secret to getting past that hurdle. There's no secret. The answer is Christ. Your marriage has problems. The answer is Christ. You have problems at work, you have problems in your own heart, you have anxiety, you have sin, you have bitterness, you have guilt, whatever you have, the solution is Christ. Back up with me to the beginning of the chapter, verse one. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle, Colossians two, verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, it's a nearby city, and for all who have not seen me face to face, here's his struggle. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, verse three, in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you you feel like you're missing in life, can be solved in Christ. In him is wisdom and knowledge. And so the point Paul is making is you have no lack spiritually. You're at a banquet table and you're hungry. You say, I need, I'm missing something. Everything you need is here spiritually. At the end of chapter two, he talks about people worshiping angels. Today, there are people who will talk about these kinds of things. You know, if you haven't had visions, you haven't reached a level of spirituality. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not the same level of spirituality. If you don't, going, that's more religious. You have the more pagan stuff. You need to buy crystals. You need to put these, these things up in your house. This is gonna, this is gonna bring, you know, good vibes in your home. This is gonna bring you close to God. People, we, we might chuckle just following these things. There is no, for the Christian, for the Christian who understands the assurance of Christ, there is no fear of missing out. You have full access to God. There's no need to compare yourself with others. You look at someone who you think is more spiritual than you or more mature, what do they have that I don't? The same, they have Christ, they have time. It's like a young tree looking to an older tree. What does that tree have that I don't? Time, it's matured, but there's nothing different. Everything you need to grow and to honor God, you have in Christ there's a, a billboard, I saw it uh, Friday, I think, or maybe Wednesday, 
on, on Beverly, just going, uh, going toward the 605, the billboard said, your neighbor has 100% fiber. Do you? This is for Fios Internet. Fios Internet. What is the point of the ad? Uh, oh, oh, well, my neighbor's got fiber. He can, he's got 12 devices. They're all gaming or streaming. And you know, I don't have 100% fiber. It, it's this fee, that, that's, what, how, that's what advertising is. You're missing something. You need to come get this. That's the spirit of the season. We can't fall victim to those kind of advertisements from a spiritual standpoint. In Christ, there is nothing lacking spiritually. You have been given the divine nature, complete access to truly and fully God. Number two, in Christ, you have been given a complete cleansing. This is what we see in verses 11 and 12. And, and the key phrase here is in him. Verse nine says, in him the fullness dwells. Verse 10 says, you've been filled in him. And that's how verse 11 starts. In him also. And, and it's almost this picture of a space. Like if you drew a circle and said, this is Christ. You're, you're in the circle. You're in Christ. In him also, verse 11 says, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That first uh, understanding of, of Jesus as a lesser God may have come from Greek philosophers. This phrase is probably addressing what they were facing from the Judaizers. These are the people who claim to follow Christ and you read about them in Acts as well, but they're saying, no, 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 you don't follow the Old Testament. See, see, you think you're saved, and it's good that you have faith, but if you don't follow these extra rules, you're not saved. Today you have a group like the Seventh-day Adventists who say, no, no, if you don't honor the Old Testament law, if you don't worship on Saturday, you don't actually know, you have a false view of Christ. You're not truly of Christ. He says, no, it's not that. The Judaizers, the main expression of Judaism for the men was the mark of circumcision. That was given to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was the mark of the Israelite nation. The men were circumcised. That was the expression of God's covenant with Israel. And connected to that would have been other restrictions based on the Old Testament law, like what you could eat. And what days you had to worship. He's going to talk about at the end of chapter 2. He talks about uh, new moons and festivals and dietary restrictions. These people were coming in saying, you have to follow these laws. And there's none of that in the New Testament. But they're mandating it. And you have to do that. Why? Because that's the way you're cleansed. You look at what Scientology says. You go in and they give you basically these interviews and they hook you up to devices. And you're, you're, you're cleansing yourself by doing these things. There's some cleansing. You're impure because you had bacon. Paul says, no, no, no. You're united to Christ. Yes, you know what? These guys are saying you need to be circumcised. You've already been circumcised, but not physically, spiritually. What is circumcision physically is the removal of a piece of flesh. Circumcision spiritually says Christ came. He has severed the flesh from you. In him, he has put off the body of the flesh. That's the circumcision of Christ. It doesn't mean we don't sin anymore because we're still living in a sinful body. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? There's a body of death. But the power of our sinful nature has been destroyed. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you are a new creation. Some elements of the new covenant we're already seeing. We have a circumcised heart, even though we live in a fleshly body. Not only were we circumcised in Christ, verse 12 goes on and says, we died with him. We were buried with him 
in baptism. And baptism there is not speaking of, of um, water baptism. The word just means to immerse. You've been immersed in Christ. That's what water baptism pictures, the, the immersion. But you're connected, you're in him, and you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You've been cleansed. You died. Your sins demand a penalty. You need to be cleansed from your sin. And the proper cleansing and the proper punishment of sin is death. But you're united to Christ. He died so that you won't have to. He died. He took the price of your sin. So spiritually, we were circumcised in Christ. We died. We were buried in Christ. We were immersed in him. And it's so basic and foundational. And yet we have to recognize that we live in a culture that loves to make people feel guilty. We live in a culture that because we feel guilty, you, you'd have to tack on rituals to make you not feel guilty. Spiritual rituals, religious rituals, medical rituals. On the more spirit, Eastern medicine, you gotta cleanse your, your chakra, your aura. You gotta do all these things to erase the bad things in your life. I think one of the extreme cases of a ritualistic mindset of, of someone longing for cleansing is those who say, well, I, I was born in the wrong body, so I have to go to a doctor and they need to change me. So I can be who I was born to be. That, that is, Paul calls it mutilation when he's speaking of circumcision. It's the same kind of concept. It's, it's, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And, Christ, and, and Paul says, no, who you are supposed to be is Christ. And you're united to him. There's, no, there's nothing missing in our life spiritually. There's nothing missing in our life ritually. So when we baptize someone, when you were baptized, when we take the Lord's Supper, there's nothing magical happening these are, these are reminders of the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says he was the sacrifice once for all. At the end of the chapter, look, look with me at chapter 2, verse 23. He's, he's describing, um, uh, back in verse 20, he's just saying, you're, you're following all these rules. Don't eat, don't touch. You're not supposed to do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Adding on to the commands of Christ, verse 23 of Colossians 2 says, these commands, these teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, that means uh, keeping away from good things that God created to enjoy, and severity to the body. There are people who, who would whip themselves, even in the history of the Catholic Church. This is a part of uh, cleansing myself from sin somehow physically. So, so there's an appearance of wisdom. It looks holy, but the end of verse 23 says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You don't need external works to be cleansed. We've been cleansed by Christ. That's the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Many of you know Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are good works. There's evidence of faith, but that, is, that flows from your salvation. It doesn't make your salvation possible. Anytime you want to do good things to earn or to maintain God's favor, that's legalism. And yet it's part of our culture's mindset. You need to do penance. I remember once I was in the office by myself, and sometimes you have people ringing the doorbell, so I rang the doorbell, and this guy showed up, and um, you could tell he, he didn't have all his wits about him, but he said, hey, uh, do you have any holy water here? And I just said, no, I'm sorry, we don't have any holy water. 
Oh, okay, okay. Do you know where I can get some? I said, well, there's a church down the street. They might have some here. Okay, thank you. And he walked away. What was he looking for? Some ritual. Some ritual, right? This is holy water. You know, this is going to make me, this is going to cleanse me. I need to feel cleansed. We don't need to live like that. We have been cleansed by Christ, not by rituals. We don't want to be like, 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 like that man who knocked on our door. In Christ, there is nothing lacking spiritually or ritually. We've been given the divine nature. We've been given a complete cleansing. Number three, we've been given a new life. We've been given a new life. You see this in verses 13 and 14. And you, verse 13 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead. You were unresponsive. You were separated from God. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. So just like we're united in Christ and his righteousness is counted in our account, just like we're united in Christ and we died with him, so we are united with Christ in the resurrection and we have been made alive in him and with him. And in Christ then, we are fully forgiven. Sins past, sins present, sins future. In Christ, they're forgiven. They have been atoned for. That truth of the gospel, you go, wait, wait, you can just go keep on sinning? No, that's what Paul addressed in Romans 6. But the fact that he addresses it in Romans 6 by saying, don't just keep on sinning, that fact proves that it was a misunderstanding of the fullness of the gospel, but they got the first part right. You're forgiven. Your sin, and Paul calls it there in in verse 14, a record of debt, which existed. You buy a house, you sign paperwork, you owe money. Back then, you would sign, I have a debt to you, and you'd write your name. My name is so-and-so, I owe you this amount of money. Jesus had a parable that he spoke of a shrewd manager, and he said, how much do you owe my master? Here, write it off. I'll write it off. You give me less. Remember that? I don't know if you know the parable, shrewd. These were, these were legal documents proving debt. Well, you have one. It was a legal document with my name on it saying these are my sins before God. And that certificate, that record of debt stood against me. It stood against you with legal demands. What is the consequence of your sin? It is physical death and it is eternal death. You will be judged forever in hell because of your sin. All of us stood that way before God. We were dead in sin, in trespasses. But God comes in the beauty and in the mercy of the gospel and he pays the price of our debt. When Satan or demons or the world says, wait a minute, you've done some things wrong. You need to do penance. You deserve a penalty. Our answer is yes, I do. But I'm united to Christ and he paid it for me already. This is part of what Jesus pictured when he was washing the disciples' feet up in the upper room. He's washing their feet, and Peter goes, wait, you can't wash my feet. You're my master. I'll wash your feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, I have nothing. You have no part in me. Basically, you're no longer with me. And then Peter says, well, okay, fine. Wash, wash my, my whole body, my head too. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Whoever's already washed doesn't need to be washed. You don't need a bath. I just need to wash your feet. And that's what pictures. We repent every day. We confess our sin. 
And Christ washes us, but it's not a forgiveness. We don't lose our salvation. We don't walk away from God. We were tainted by the world. That's, that's what happened literally back then. People didn't have shoes. They had sandals, and your feet got dirty. You go through this life, sin in your heart, sin in your mind, sin in the world affects you. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. Just your feet. You're already clean in Christ. Payment was made. You have been justified. Justification means God has declared you righteous. He knows you did it. We know we did it. But God says you're innocent because the price has been paid by Christ. Your sins were given to him. He died for them as your high priest. And you will not be punished again. We know from Hebrews there will be a fatherly discipline. But it's not punishment. If you have acknowledged your sin before God, God has, as this says, taken that list of sins and he has nailed it to the cross. One pastor says, do you realize God took a list of all your sins and he placed it in Jesus' hand and he drove a nail through it. It's gone. And now you are a child of the eternal living and true God. We have to rehearse these truths because we don't feel like they're true sometimes. All of us know what it's like to have someone be mad at you. Your, your, your husband might be upset at you, your wife might be upset at you, or you might think they're upset at you, your neighbor, your kids, your coworker, whatever. And when you think someone is mad at you, you, you know, give them their space. They need to process a little bit. They don't want to hear from me right now. So you avoid them for a time. God is not like that. When you think, oh, you know what, I just have done so much, I can't even pray right now. God is not in there going, well, yeah, you, you better take a day and then come back and talk to me. That is not God. God delights in a broken heart to come before him and say, Lord, I messed up again. Cleanse me today. Wash me. I'm trusting in Christ. He delights in those who come to him in humility. In the times when God feels most distant, know that that's a feeling. That's not the truth. He's near you if you're in Christ. Know that the feelings of guilt are not the same as actual legal guilt. You can not feel guilty and be guilty, right? There are criminals who walk away smiling after they commit a crime. They don't feel guilty, but they are. On the flip side, there are people who feel absolutely guilty over something, but there's no guilt anymore. God has said, that's done. My son has paid the price. We confess our sin. We go to him in the name of Christ, and he accepts us. So in Christ, there's nothing missing spiritually. There's nothing missing ritually. There's nothing missing relationally. We have new life, and we're one with the Father. We, in Christ, in his sacrifice, have been given the divine nature. We have been given a complete cleansing. We have been given a new life. And lastly, we have been given a triumphant victory. This is verse 15. Still talking about what God has done in Christ. God the Father, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We tell our kids, I'm sure you told your kids the same, hey, if you go play soccer or baseball and you win, don't be a, um, a poor, you know, don't be a poor loser. Don't be a sore winner. Either. Don't, don't brag. Don't, don't, you know, don't boast about it. That applies on the human level. But that is not the type of victory described here. God triumphs over powers and authorities. That is speaking of angelic beings. And these would be evil angelic beings, which we refer to as demons. The chief demon, the highest demon is 
Satan. He's a demon. We don't always think somebody put him in a separate category. He's an angel, an evil angel, a powerful angel. But Satan is a demon. He's not excluded from this verse. He is the one who brought sin into the world. And when sin came into the world, all the other things we hate came into the world. Whether it's self-doubt and sin and guilt, whether it's tension with other people, whether it's physical sickness, physical disabilities, all these things came in, disease, death, all that ugly stuff, all that relational strife came into the world because of sin, and that came into the world because of Satan. And then Christ, being God in human flesh, came into the world, and he bore this world. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows. And he bore the full extent of Satan's power, which is death. And he was ridiculed for it. The people mocked him. The Jewish leaders mocked him. The Romans mocked him. The Greek philosophers in the time to come, they mocked him. How could this man be God if he died? Some have even speculated that the demons, not knowing what God knew, were were celebrating some kind of Victory when Christ died, similar to what uh, C.S. Lewis pictures in um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's dead. Celebrate. But as we've been reading in Hebrews, we know it's through his death that the veil was torn, sin was forgiven, and Satan was defeated. What is the great weapon? Verse 15 God disarmed the demons. What's their weapon? What weapon does Satan have to condemn people eternally? It is unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin. Christ came. He provided the once for all sacrifice for sin and he forgave it. Satan has no power over us. We're going to be affected by sin of others. We're going to be affected by our own sin. We're going to be affected by the world and physically we're going to feel it. But there is no eternal power over us Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the resurrection, the final resurrection to come, where, oh, where is your sting, O death? Christ has given us the victory. We need to take that to heart because there are people in groups today who who say we need to use incantations and this is gonna stop Satan in your life. He's already defeated. He's like the chicken with the head cut off. It's dead. It's running around. It's causing problems, but it's dead already. That's Christ. You don't have to worry about how, how do I beat him? How do I, how do I bind him? Christ, will take, Christ has taken care of that spiritually and he will come and he will take care of that eternally. And so all the things we face in this life from Satan, our own sin, the sin of others, all those things are gonna be done away with when Christ comes and makes his victory fully known to all creation. His victory will be final. This world will be restored. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings we have now cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. The closest picture this earth had of the coming kingdom of Christ is when Christ came the first time. He went in, people were hurting, he healed them. People didn't know the truth, he taught them. Some people were disabled or something. It wasn't through a sickness. It was because of some demon work. He cast out demons. He was to give the people a picture of this is what the kingdom will be like when the king is recognized among his people. And we know that's going to happen one day when Christ comes. And so we need to live with joy. Not with this defeated attitude. Oh, I messed up. Oh, I'm a sinner. Oh, 
people don't like me, whatever, all kinds of things. They, they may be true, but they're not eternal. The victory has been given to us in Christ. I can have peace in any battle because Christ has triumphed over them. He put them to open shame. You know, when I think of open shame, I think of the stocks. Many years ago, we would think, oh, that's cruel and unusual punishment. They put people out in front of the world to see, and there they are in the stocks. Like we took pictures of ourselves in eighth grade. We went to uh, New England and uh, Williamsburg, old cities, and some of the kids get in the stocks, and they take pictures, and it looks funny. But the point of that was to shame the person. All the community came out and said, look what this man or woman did. That's at least a picture in my mind of putting them to open shame. Christ brought a victory and the Lord will celebrate it. When you die, there is no purgatory. There is no limbo. There is no halfway. You are victorious in Christ There is nothing in Christ lacking spiritually, ritually, relationally, or eternally. And that's part of our remembrance when we take the Lord's Supper. Christ is coming back. And we will see that victory ourselves. I think a fitting illustration here is the parable most of us, I think, know. And that's the prodigal son. He was giving an illustration of salvation. He was giving an illustration of the Father's heart. And he was giving an illustration of, 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 of the, the pieces of, of salvation. What could the prodigal son do to fix himself? Nothing. He wanted to eat the pig's food. He couldn't do anything. All he thought to do was, I got to go back home and I will beg my father for forgiveness. And Jesus said, while he was still a far way off, his father saw him and he ran to him. So his father was looking, and his father went to him. A grown man in, in, in the story went running. Back then, you have the tunics. You had a, the grown man picked up his skirt, and he ran. And his son smelled like filth. And what did he do? He said, oh, let's get you home. Let's get a bath. And then you'll be my... That's not what he said. He said, go, bring him a new robe. Bring him sandals for his feet. Bring him a ring. My son has returned. That's the kindness of God. You come to him, yes, with filth, yes, with sin, and God says, you're one of mine. I will cover your shame. That's the gospel. And Paul's reminded here to all of us is don't forget that. Stay focused on Christ. You're not missing anything. God has covered your shame. And God will bring you a final victory. He's guaranteed it in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. Don't be distracted by anybody saying there's some missing component to your Christian life. What do you do? You wanna grow spiritually? What do you do? You read your Bible. You learn from the word of God. You, you, you interact with brothers and sisters in the faith. All that we need is right here. You, come, you pray. You hear from God. You speak to God. You have everything you need. There's no way for any of us to earn points with God, to, to do, have some kind of mystical bingo game. This, this is gonna get gain points. What you need is Christ. If you have Christ, Paul says, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this reminder. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with humility and gratitude and joy and unity as we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. We know we're sinners. We know we fall in so many different ways. We know we disappoint you as our Heavenly Father. 
but we know that our sins are covered in Christ and like a compassionate father, you know that we are just flesh and you take us as one of your own and you cleanse us by the sacrifice of Christ. You've covered us with his righteousness. You call us saints and you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion one day. Remind us of this victory and compel us to live in light of it with joy, with peace, and with urgency in proclaiming its message. For those who don't know you, we pray you would help them come to the awareness of their sin and to bow their hearts and their lives to Christ who alone can give them true victory. Bless us, Lord, as we partake of the supper in Jesus' name. Amen.